Hello, it's Paul Scott here again with part two of my podcast. I've slept on this overnight, so it's now Sunday the 25th of June. I did the main company's podcast yesterday, um, but I've really been completely overwhelmed, I have to say, this week by all the macro news and so many opinions and so much data coming at me that I needed a little bit of time to just think, which I've now done. So hopefully this stuff will make sense. Obviously, most people know me by now, but I'm a small caps blogger. I've been a, a, a small caps investor now for, well, for my living for over 20 years, in total for 25 years. Bought my first shares in my own name 35 years ago. So I've been doing this a while with mixed results, I think, so it's fair to say, very much a roller coaster ride. Uh, although my long-term track record on my um, ungeared portfolio is is actually not bad. It's uh, at the moment it's dropped. Actually, it was twenty percent per annum compound since I set up my SIP eleven years ago, but it's actually slipped back to about thirteen percent compound since twenty twelve. So, but actually, that's still not bad when you look at thirteen percent compound over say twenty years. It's pretty astronomical, the um, end result, actually. So I'm very much a recent convert to doing things more slowly and calmly rather than trying to shoot the lights out all all the time. So um, what do I know about economics? Well, a reasonable amount. I'd say I'm certainly not an expert, but I've studied it all my life and um, it was part of my degree after O-level and A-level. You know, I've got a good general knowledge, I would say, of economics, but certainly not an expert. And I'm not trying to particularly push my opinions. I'm, I'm just really... The purpose of these macro markets podcasts is really just to just to regurgitate stuff that I've jotted down on uh, my pad during the week that I thought looked interesting and share those ideas with you. Looking at the UK indices, it's really been a horrible week, actually. Um, uh, this is just from the charts on the Stockopedia browse section. You can click on a button in the top right and sh- convert all the list of indices into smallish charts, which I, is very good. So I've put the six-month time scale on because that approximates to year-to-date, given that we're on 25th of June. Uh, FTSE 100 has given up its gains. It looks roughly flat year-to-date. Now, the FTSE 250 is really taken a whack. Um, dropping from 19,200 recently, a couple of weeks ago, from 19.2 down to 18,000. So that's a big move on the FTSE 250, the mid-caps index. I think that's now down 4 to 5% year-to-date, roughly. Um, uh, and, oh, AIM, of course, is still... That's the benchmark I use, because most of my investments are small caps, uh, usually on AIM. Uh, I don't draw any particular distinction between AIM and fully listed small caps. Um, because I only try to buy the decent stuff. I don't buy all the, the junk, usually. <laughs> but I get caught out every now and again, as everyone does at this end of the market. Now, the AIM All Share Index, as I say, this is the one I benchmark myself against. This is down about seven, between 7 and 8% year-to-date. So my... Um, my watch list for 2023 Value Garp shares is up 7% year to date. So I'm really pleased that those um, shares that I published in January as being my sort of relatively safe Value Garp small cap picks is outperforming the market by 14%. So I think that's pretty good. And we've had two takeover bids as well, Lookers and BOTB, although BOTB was a, a stingy takeover bid. It was still at a premium 
to 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 where it was at the beginning of the year. So uh, in a way, that's quite encouraging. My own personal portfolio is massively up because of that bid from Seraphine that I had in January, which was by far my biggest position. So I got lucky, um, definitely. But anyway, it's nice to be outperforming a really, really pretty horrible market. So that's overview uh, grim, basically, for, for, for UK stock markets, particularly small caps, but mid caps struggling now as well. Right, let's shift just to run through my usual bullet points of just interesting things that I picked up during the week for you to ponder. First of all, next surprised us all, I think, with an um, update, unscheduled update, which uh, indicated they were trading absolutely way ahead of guidance, plus 9%, I think it was, full price sales. This is for the last seven weeks only, May and June, when the weather improved dramatically from the wet and rainy spring weather, which does boost clothing sales. Anyway, they also cited, um, so plus 9% when they were they were guiding, minus 5% revenues. So what Next said is, apart from the weather, it was the record pay increases in April. Uh, everyone, well, not everyone, but a large number of uh, employees and benefit claimants and pension pensioners, state pensioners, got these substantial increases of maybe ten percent for from the government and so on. So all those big rises concentrated into happening in one month uh, made us all go on a bit of a spending spree. So, which I've actually been predicting here for quite a long time. So it's nice to see uh, that uh, happen. Uh, Next did caution, though, that they think the effect of this will gradually wear off because, of course, you get a step up in your pay, but then it just gradually erodes with inflation as time goes on, which did make me wonder why uh, maybe it's time to split pay rises and benefits and pension increases and do them twice a year uh, to smooth out the effects a bit more and to give people a bit of a helping hand in between pay rises. So that's something... uh, the powers that be might want to consider. On house prices, uh, Lloyds Bank rather unhelpfully put out a comment saying that worst case scenario is that house prices could fall by 35%. Now, okay, that's a worst case scenario. We did actually see that. I remember that happening um, back in the late 80s to the early 90s. There were a whole convergence of factors which did cause house prices to drop by about 35% and they didn't really meaningfully recover till about 1996. I remember that very well but interest rates then were way way higher. Everyone was on variable mortgages then instead of fixed Um, and there were a whole range of other factors that caused that so I think yes okay to Lloyd's 35% may be a worst case scenario but in that scenario, we'd have a lot more to worry about than just the prices of our houses, I think. I think that's very unlikely, that scenario as well. Now, gilt yields are hitting a 15-year high, um, which obviously uh, has a whole range of effects. And, um, you know, is this going to start destabilising destabilizing the financial system again? Uh, we did see that, didn't we, the last time it's happened Um This is the problem. I'll come on to rising interest rates near the end because I've got about a 10-minute section on that. Now, China and the US are holding talks to improve relations, which is always good, isn't it? Let's hope something substantive comes out of that. Interesting uh, interesting article here from uh, Bild, the best-selling newspaper in Germany, is making hundreds of redundancies, and apparently it's it's going to replace a lot of journalists with artificial intelligence. I thought that was really interesting. Um read across perhaps to uh, other areas. I hope I don't need to have to start looking at my laurels, uh, but I've got a a funny section on that later. 
Oh, the Telegraph reports that fractional shares are not allowed in ISAs. There's some firm called Free Trade, apparently, which some people have been, some investors have been using, um, and now to, to with fractional share ownership, apparently, and that's not allowed. So that could cause a problem for some ISA investors who've uh, dabbled in fractional shares. Obviously, the profit warning from Somero Enterprises I mentioned in the other podcast, this made me wonder if higher interest rates and, the, and potential economic slowdown, um, which isn't really actually happening yet, uh, means that perhaps we need to steer clear of company shares for makers of sort of large capital goods. Um, that tends to be the stuff where purchasing is deferred or cancelled once the economy slows, doesn't it? So I'm a little bit wary about... Um, large capital goods uh, manufacturers at the moment oh you know if we do get an economic downturn as well I've made a note here uh, that the market will certainly give us a lesson in operational gearing and we're already seeing this from one or two profit warnings which look fairly mild in the RNS and the revenue line but then you look at the uh, broker updates and you see they slashed the forecasts Sorry, I lost my thread there because I just had to take a call. So I think I was saying about operational gearing, wasn't I? Yeah, I think some sectors probably are going to go into recession, aren't they? And I think we've got to be really careful. We can look back at previous recessions and see which sectors got hit the hardest. Um, So uh, this all should be manageable. Now, I put here wage price spiral. It looks like there is an increasing risk of uh, wages and inflation causing a spiral, doesn't it? Although, maybe not a spiral, I think spiral is the wrong word, but wage growth does certainly seem to be a factor in reinforcing inflation, and that's um, that's definitely got worse in the last few weeks, hasn't it? So um, that is a factor I'm placing more emphasis on. Now, I've questioned here, this was next point was triggered by Music Magpie, MMAG, which I think is hopeless for reasons I've explained in the other podcast. I've, well, it made me wonder, how long will banks keep lending against multiples of EBITDA? Because it's such an unreliable number with some companies, like Music Magpie, which capitalises, I think, something like 4 or $5 million a year in uh, development spend on the IT side of things. It capitalises it, and it reports EBITDA before all those costs. So actually, with Music Magpie, EBITDA of about $8 million turns into a loss before tax of about $1.5 million. And the loss before tax is the number that is closest, in that case, to cash flow. So this, I think, is a ticking time bomb under a lot of uh, companies with bank debts where the EBITDA number is not close to cash flow at all. It is with some companies... With some companies, EBITDA is a good proxy for cash flow, but it's not with many others. And I think at some point, the penny might drop with banks that actually they're taking a lot more risk than they think they are. By um, So maybe this fashion of linking lending to EBITDA could change. I think it probably needs to. Now, Forex. Um, I've mentioned here the big rebound in the sterling, sterling against dollar. Now, I'd be really worried if sterling was persistently weak, because that would imply the markets want them to put up interest rates even more. But that's not the case. Sterling has fully recovered from the October plunge. It's now at about 127, 128 level against the dollar. So I don't think we have to worry too much about that. Um, but I do wonder if this might become a headwind for some companies that I recall benefited from um, the weakness of sterling and the strength of the dollar. Could that now reverse round at least somewhat for some companies? 
So that might be worth asking when you talk to company uh, management, you know, how do they see the more recent sort of violent movements in foreign exchange um, affecting them. It'll be different for every company. Difficult to predict as well because some some companies hedge, some don't. So I don't know the answers on that. I'm just raising the question. I picked up here some news that apparently gilt yields fell uh, after Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, ruled out mortgage support. Now this... uh, I mean, this again is ridiculous, isn't it? This company is just this country, the UK, has become addicted to state handouts, uh, and that's not me being a, 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 a staunch Thatcherite. I'm just commenting on things that have happened more recently. Everybody seems to think that if there's a problem, the government just waves a magic wand and compensates everybody. I, th- I blame Gordon Brown for starting this with the uh, winter fuel payments, which were initially very small. But but it's been a ratchet since then. You had, uh, obviously, the big ones. You had COVID, where the government just paying us all to stay at home and do nothing. Well, I didn't get any fellow money, but a lot of people did. And then the energy crisis, there's a huge clamour for everyone who wants the government to pay part of their energy bills, which, OK, maybe... Uh, well, it actually worked out quite well. But, um, you know, the latest thing is, oh, mortgage rates are shooting up, so there's a clamour now for the government to sort of subsidise people's mortgage payments. Well... I'm really glad, actually, Jeremy Hunt just said, no, no way, we're not doing it. Um, thank goodness, because, you know, it's a risk. When you buy a house and you take on a mortgage, you know that uh, there's going to be a lot of risk, particularly in the early days when you're struggling to make the payments. If interest rates go up, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be very, very difficult. You know, I can remember what happened in the early 90s when the interest rates went up to 12%, 15%. And at that point in time, remember... Um, I think practically everybody was on variable rates. You didn't have these two and five year fixed rates at the time. I, I luckily I'd, 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 I couldn't afford to buy a house at the time. I'd just started work, um, which was luck more than judgment. And I waited until 1996 when house prices were starting to rise and interest rates dropped quite a bit. So I was lucky. A lot of it is luck, isn't it? This time round, the rates, even after all the hikes, are nowhere near the levels they were in the 90s. And the blow is very significantly cushioned by the fact that I think 85% I read somewhere of people have fixed or discount, no, fixed rate mortgages. So it's it's just a lottery when your fixed rate expires. But that does have the benefit of gradually smoothing the impact of rising interest rates. And the numbers of household affected is a lot lower than I expected. There's a very good article in The Telegraph about this from Jerry, Jeremy Warner mm-hmm. saying it only... Um, it's going to be something like a £6 billion hit to household incomes. Um, I think that was for the rest of this year, for, from fixed rates ending and going to much higher rates. And, of course, savers will benefit correspondingly by a, a similar amount. So, actually, it's shifting money from one group of people, mortgage holders, to another group of people, savers. And I know the idea is that savers have a lower propensity to spend that money. Um but I'm I'm starting to wonder if this is... It's looking to me as if this is not necessarily the catastrophe that everybody currently seems to think it is. And further supporting that view is the consumer confidence numbers. These are um, from a long-running series of data from GFK. You can look them up on the web. And I was really quite surprised to see that the latest read was minus 26. Now, these, the Consumer Confidence Index is always negative. 
but the low point was minus 49 in September 22. And ever since then, just with one small blip down in December, ever since September 22, the consumer confidence numbers have been steadily improving and considerably improving. It's gone from minus 49 to minus 26. I've just had a look at the data because I like to get to the source myself uh, wherever I can if I understand what the data is. Um, rather than replying, relying on journalists to mangle it for me. And in particular, the, the, the element of the consumer confidence number that talks about how people see their personal household situation uh, developing over the next 12 months has improved dramatically. So this, I think, is really important, and I think that could mean that we uh, might well be surprised by the strength of the consumer and hence the economy um, for the next uh, while. And that wasn't my preconception, I have to add. Uh, My preconception before I looked at all this data was, oh, I think we're definitely heading into a recession uh, because that's what everyone's saying. But, you know, looking at some of this data, I'm really starting to wonder if that's actually um, likely to happen. I'm, 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 I don't think, I don't think there's a guarantee it will. And that affects, obviously, what I'm going to do with my shares, because that's why I'm looking at all this, because it's, it forms the, the, the sort of, you know, the bedrock for what I want to do with my investments. Oh, just on st- a Stockopedia issue, there was a, another update done to the site, which apparently caused people some login problems for half a day or something. Sorry about that. Obviously, I'm not IT, so it's not really my place to apologise for anybody, but, you know, it's a minor glitch. Don't let's not get not get overexcited about it. But anyway, one of the one of the changes is that um, it now shows when readers post comments, it shows uh, how long you've been a member. So I thought that was a nice touch, so that we can welcome new members if we see that somebody's you know only joined in twenty twenty three. I think it'd be rather nice for us to say uh, welcome to Stockopedia and you know encourage people to post comments. The comments section's really coming alive again now. I'm absolutely delighted by the uh, stuff that's um, being posted by everyone. We've got some really good discussions going on. Nearly always courteous. We <laughs> we had somebody who obviously was having a bad day who threw their, their toys out of the pram and uh, announced they were going to unsubscribe or whatever. And everyone was like, oh, OK, bye then. <laughs> you know, if you're having a bad day, I find it's best not to post anything. Oh, uh, a press article here saying that the IFS, what's that, Institute of Fiscal Studies, is it? I can't remember. says that the interest rate hike will hammer disposable incomes of 1.4 million people. Well, my first reaction to that was that's actually quite small. 1.4 million people in a, in a country of, what, 70 or 72 million people? Uh, although I suppose if you take children out of it, it would maybe 60 million people. 1.4 doesn't seem that high, does it? And bearing in mind that there are many millions more of savers who are going to be getting a boost to their income from uh, deposits on um, their cash accounts. Again, that's pointing me towards thinking this may not be as bad as everyone thinks. And of course, many people have never experienced interest rate hikes. So this is a rude awakening. The the demographic that is going to hurt the most is people in their 30s with mortgages, apparently. And as I say, they could have given us some warning, though, couldn't they? I think they've... They, the zero interest rates for 15 years looked like it was going to be zero interest rates and QE forever, and then bang, they've just suddenly, you know, um, uh, turned the whole thing sort of back to normal interest rates. Because remember, 5% 
historically, in my lifetime anyway, is actually fairly low interest rates. So, we've, but we've gone back to, to, to normal just in this, in this crash rather than in a sort of gradual managed way, I feel. So I, I reiterate my view that I think the policymakers are making a total hash of this. But it's not just the UK. If you look, it, it's all really being driven by the Fed. Uh, and the UK has to, to follow suit. There's a brilliant page on trading economics. I've just been browsing um, the website. It's a fantastic website. Trading economics, uh, where is it? Uh, yeah, it's just trading economics, all one word, dot com. And absolute masses of information on there where you can compare uh, all sorts of economic indicators between countries, bearing in mind there'll be differences in the way they're calculated and so on. So it's not 100% obviously gospel. But when I reviewed the pages of interest rates in other countries, uh, it's very, very interesting. It puts it all into perspective. The, Euro- the UK's gone up to 5%. The Eurozone's at 4%. This is Remember, this is base rates. I'm not talking about gilt yields. This is base rates. Um, and the US, I think, is five or five and a quarter percent. So actually, when you look at it in the context of other countries and many, many other sort of what they patronizingly call less developed countries, but looking at much, much higher numbers than that, uh, you know, actually, the, the UK is not an outlier, particularly. It's a bit higher than, than the Eurozone, but not much, really. And um, actually slightly below the US. So that's worth bearing in mind, I think. We, we, we do need to broaden our views on these things to an international view, I think. Now, the UK debt to GDP went over 100%, but nobody seems to uh, pick up on the fact that the Bank of England owns now uh, £800 billion of the total stock, which uh, I don't know what that, that percentage is, but it's probably about... What's that, a third, maybe, of all UK national debt is owned by the Bank of England still? That's reduced from, I think it was 900 or 925, the peak. So they've done quantitative tightening to, by the looks of it, of over 100 billion, which, again, is one of the reasons why UK gilts are are so much higher. It's not just market uh, supply and demand. It's because the the only buyer, basically, during QE was the Bank of England. During COVID, anyway, the Bank of England basically bought all the gilts being issued. Uh, that's why gilt yields were so low. Um, whereas now it's it's stopped buying um, gilts and it's actually selling them. So the Bank of England is so, you know, again they can dial they can dial gilt yields up and down to a very considerable extent with QE and QT. That's worth bearing in mind. But again, not my expert area, so I'm just making more broad general comments. Now, premium bonds. The interest rate on that, I saw, has risen to 3.7%. Now, during the zero interest rate environment, of course, premium bonds are paying practically nothing as an overall percentage. So that means, I think, premium bonds, 3.7% implied interest rate from the prizes, could be worth you having a fresh look at, if you're minded to. Another point here on house building... um, Small and medium enterprises, SMEs or SMEs, apparently used to build 40% of all the houses. That's now, because banks are not lending, that's dropped down to just 10%. Which made me think, that's a lot less competition. And this is because, yeah, as I say, the bank lending is uh, more difficult to get. So that means less competition for the big house builders, doesn't it? So you might see... Uh, them be a bit more robust than uh, imagined, although I think there's little doubt, is there, that house builders are coming in for a sort of, likely to be coming in for a sort of second wave of deterioration in trading. 
Um, and the shares have reflected that. House builder shares, shares have given up pretty much all the gains that we've seen recently, rightly so, because the macro positions worsened. But I'm sort of hovering on the sidelines again with house builders. At some point, I'll, I'll buy back in. Uh, my favourite being Cress Nicholson and uh, MJ Gleeson. So, um, because the MJ Gleason particularly is targeting the very, very affordable end of the market that shouldn't really be impacted that much, if at all, by interest rates. So, I'm I'm waiting to pick my spot on house building shares again. I wouldn't be interested in looking at uh, London and the South East house builders, because that's where the big mortgages are that are going to be really hard to uh, to to get. I forget who it was. It might have been, there was a really good podcast again with uh, Christopher Mills of Howard Capital, who I greatly admire. And um, he, uh, I think it was in this podcast, I think it was with Paul Hill, where he said the whole, the way the market is at the moment, small caps are just drifting down and down and down. And then you're just waiting for takeover bids to come in. So, uh, which is depressing, but it's also a really good sign that this market is oversold now, isn't it? That that we're getting lots of bid interest, um, a lot of it from overseas. I think that's very positive because, you know, the market is screaming to me personally on an individual company level, things are too cheap. And the fact that we're getting lots of bid approaches just confirms that, doesn't it? So I remain uh, very bullish about the medium term outlook for individual companies. Um... And actually, I'm not as downbeat as I was last week on the economy, having done more digging on these uh, on the data and these issues um, yesterday and today. Also, um, something that reminded me of the 1990s, actually, um, <clears throat> there's, there's signs that um, people with mortgage difficulties, you know, coming off their fixed rate and having a huge hike in their mortgage payments, are taking in lodgers to help to cushion the blow. Um, and that's exactly what happened in the 90s. I remember I, I got to move into a beautiful house in Southampton with a wonderful lady called Fiona who'd, uh, who was saddled with a, a massive mortgage, that the cost of which had gone through the roof. And uh, she'd gone into negative equity. Her absolute shit of a partner had uh, walked out. And um, so she was left to holding the baby. So she got two lodges in, me and... Um, uh, Alison, who uh, and we began, we ended up having a wonderful time. I stayed there six years, and uh, it enriched all our lives. I think that house share. So it just shows, doesn't it? Out of adversity comes positive stuff, and um, I think this could help ease the shortage of rented housings. If more owner occupiers look at their spare bedroom and say, "Well, let's let's get a lodger in," why not? Now on energy costs, um, I got notification that my bill is going to reduce from £2,204 estimated a year usage to just under 2000 So that's just over £200 reduction, about 10%. Can't really get excited about that. Part of the, the, the energy cap thing is coming down quite a bit, but those £67 a month payments from the government have, have stopped, so that offsets a lot of it. And I can't switch. So it's a rigged market at the moment, isn't it? If, they, if you had... Um, electricity suppliers competing against each other so that you could uh, you could switch supplier but you can't switch so at the moment it's a completely rigged market um, and we'll just have to see what happens won't we obviously what's going on in Russia at the moment I mean everybody's watching the television I'm sure yesterday we were told there was a coup against Vladimir Putin that his mercenaries the Wagner group have turned against him and were marching on Moscow well today the papers are saying that they've 
reached a comp- uh, Putin's compromise with them and allowed the leader to um, to go into uh, what's the word? Oh, I can't think of it. You know what I mean? Go into sanctuary or whatever in Belarus, which obviously makes Putin look very weak, doesn't it? That he's um, so it looks like his regime's days are numbered. But the last thing we want is it all disintegrating into civil war. And how all this affects the uh, Ukraine war, oh, God, nobody knows. I mean, um, but it certainly introduces a lot of uncertainty, doesn't it? Let's hope it it hastens the end of this mindless war in Ukraine. And, um, you know, we can just stop having this slaughter and mindless destruction going on any longer. Um, but look, it's anybody's guess how these things pan out. And the exports, experts always get it wrong with their predictions. So I'm certainly not an expert, so I certainly won't be making any predictions. But it's it's something I follow very closely, as I did my degree in international relations and economics. And I, I find geopolitics fascinating. But uh, I know enough to know that I don't know enough to predict anything, <laughs> if that makes sense. Now it's Mellow Monday. Quick plug for Mellow Monday. Um, now we've got Al Graham from Stockopedia and uh, Megan from Stockopedia both doing uh, presentations which look really interesting. So it'd be good for us to give them uh, our support. So let's tune in to Mellow Monday on Monday, this uh, tomorrow. Finally, I just want to mention something my friend Phil flagged up to me. Uh, it was actually in a podcast from the FT, which in itself was very, very good. I've signed up for the FT podcast. Um, and it concerned uh, artificial intelligence and voice. It, it concerned a company that's developed some incredible software that converts text to speech in a very, very... Um, you can barely tell it's a computer. It's so good. And they also do voice... Uh, what do they call it? Simulation or something like that, where you can train the model by giving it just about one minute, I think, of certain words that you have to read in your own voice. And... Um, then the program can actually reproduce your voice and say anything in your view, in your voice. So obviously, Rory Bremner's now going to be out of work, isn't he? And uh, <laughs> and um, you know, this 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 conjures up a lot of issues, doesn't it? In the you know, record was that recording of Rishi Sunak making a joke about um, women with penises the other week? Was that actually Rishi Sunak? It could have been this language model very easily so I think we're certainly whenever we hear audio of somebody saying something outrageous we're going to have to start questioning now whether it is real or whether it's um, uh, artificial intelligence or or in other words you know a very clever computer program I don't know if there's actually any intelligence involved now, the website, you can try this out for yourself, which is enormous fun. The website is beta.11labs, one word, dot I-O. But basically, if you just do a Google search for 11labs, and that's the, the, the word 11, labs, L-A-B-S, you'll find the website. And you can, you can paste in, I think, up to 333 uh, characters, and then press a button, choose the voice you want, and um, it will read the text out. So here you are. I put in a small section from one of my Small Cat Valley reports last week, and I chose the voice Adam, which has a nice pleasing tone to it and a rather uh, sexy American accent. So here it is. This is literally... I've just pasted in some text onto this website, and this is what it's produced. I woke up very early today after having a weird dream about being interrogated, gaslighted by Ant and Deck. Then Ed turned up and rescued me. 
only to get me involved in investigating the death of a busker. Maybe I should stick to writing these reports, as I don't think my subconscious is displaying much talent for fiction. Isn't that good? I don't think he puts as much sort of passion or oomph into it as I like to, just as I'm obviously a bit more excitable than uh, synthetic AI Adam is. Now, um, oh, hang on, let me just change the settings because I want to do something else with this. Now, obviously, with it being the weekend, I sometimes like to identify as Bella instead of Adam. So this is how Bella sounds. I woke up very early today after having a weird dream about being interrogated, gaslighted by Ant and Deck. Then Ed turned up and rescued me, only to get me involved in investigating the death of a busker. Maybe I should stick to writing these reports, as I don't think my subconscious is displaying much talent for fiction. Again, that's really impressive, isn't it? It's all, It almost sounds like a human. Um, uh, I think you could probably get away with saying that that does sound like a human, actually. Uh, so I was so impressed with this, because I've never heard any computerised talking that sounds anything like as good as what uh, Eleven Labs have developed here. I wonder how long it'll be before chatbots and AI merge with this voice synthesis and uh, we could end up having phone calls with uh, a computer and whilst thinking we're talking to a human so there are obvious productivity gains aren't there as well as all the mischief that people can make with this type of thing which we need to be careful about there are you know maybe this this sort of stuff this ai stuff could be the way to solve our productivity crisis in that we're we're all um we're not seeing gdp growth because we're we're so relatively unproductive um AI could um, could break that uh, blockage, couldn't it, with productivity gains? So, all very interesting. Oh, gosh, I forgot that I was going to do the monetary policy summary. OK, I've downloaded and printed the Bank of England's... Uh, it's only about 14 pages, interest rate decision thing, and I've made some notes on it, and it's actually an interesting read so i, I it's i would i would recommend uh, you having a look at it and it's the the minutes of the monetary policy committee meeting on 21st of june so it it explains to us the rationale for the interest rate decision uh, this week where they put up rates from four and a half to five percent now at the beginning of the week it was expected that the rate would rise by only a quarter of a percent this is partly why the market's um, were really um, hit quite hard this week. And early in the week, uh, a commentator said there was a one in five chance, statistically, of a half percent rise. Well, that's what happened. So that's, uh, you know, that's why we, we had a difficult um, market this week. Now, I've said here, the, the, whole, the whole report from the Bank of England seems to rest on the fallacy, as I see it, that the Bank of England, in interest rates alone control inflation which of course they don't it's just one factor it's a blunt instrument that crashes the economy into a downturn if interest rates um, are too high and central banks historically have been notoriously inept at setting interest rates so i'm uh, i'm a bit worried about this anyway running through the document uh the the summary says the bank of england um act of 1998 gives the Bank of England operational responsibility for setting monetary policy to meet the government's inflation target. Now, I think a lot of people are saying, and I agree with this, that this is far too narrow a remit. You can't possibly have... I mean, as we're seeing, interest rates are just being hiked up to a ridiculous extent because the Bank of England seems to be just blindly 
chasing this this um, this target of getting inflation arbitrary target of getting inflation down to two percent. Well, I think it's 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 a really unsophisticated, crude uh, strategy and remit. So I think we need the politicians need, really need to rethink this remit about arbitrary 2% inflation. I understand why they want to squeeze inflation out of the system, but I think surely it needs to be joined up with government fiscal policy. You know, the gov- they're pulling in different directions. The government's running a deficit of something like 7% of GDP, so that means they're borrowing about 14% of every pound that the government spends. So the government is heavily stimulating the economy with its uh, fiscal policy, whilst the Bank of England is pulling on the brake by jack- hard by jacking up um, interest rates. It's not joined up, is it? Now, although I did find a point, paragraph 35, which reassured me in the Bank of England statement, I'll read this, it's only one sentence, the Monetary Policy Committee sets monetary policy to meet the 2% inflation target, this is the important bit, and in a way that helps to sustain growth and employment. Well, I wasn't aware of that. So, in a way that helps to sustain growth and employment. So, that is reassuring, isn't it? Because if growth goes negative, if, we, if they do engineer a recession, which seems to be what they're trying to do, and the employment market weakens, then that would surely open the door for the Bank of England to actually reduce interest rates again. Up until now, I couldn't see what the trigger for that, for that would be. So it's uncertain where interest rates would go. Now, I should mention here as well, I saw people were slagging off Robert Peston for predicting that interest rates would remain at the current elevated level for the next three years. But to be fair to Peston, um, the Bank of England report actually does say that. It says that um, that's what current market rates are, um, are implying. So he got that from the Bank of England report. So I think Peston is off the hook on that particular point. Just some other points from the Bank of England report. It says uh, the greater share of fixed rate mortgages means that the full impact of the increase in bank base rates to date will not be felt for some time. Now, that that raises the question, doesn't it? Why do they keep raising rates when we haven't seen the impact of the rate increases they've done already? So there's lots of contradictions, I think, in what the Bank of England's doing, from just from a standpoint of me being a, a generalist on this. They're saying that the GDP growth is probably still around a quarter of a percent uh, around the middle of this year. Uh, indicators of household spending have tended to strengthen it a little, and the labour market is still strong. These are the main reasons it went for another um, interest rate hike, on top of the fact that in the latest inflation data was stubbornly high, as I'm sure you've read everywhere. Private sector average average weekly earnings increased by 7.6%, half percent above expectation. So basically the inflation data and the wages, the labour market data is running hot. That's why they went for yet another hike. But there are positive signs because throughout the report it makes repeated reference to the fact that data is showing that um, CPI inflation is expected to fall significantly further during the course of the year. So everybody who's saying, oh, inflation's stubbornly high, it's not going to reduce, I think you're half right and half wrong. Yes, it is stubbornly high so far, but it is going to reduce further according to all the surveys and the data that the Bank of England uh, references. Obviously, that's not my opinion, that's what the report says. Oh, it says the external shocks which caused uh, some of the inflation are going to take longer to unwind than they did to emerge. 
So again, that's a negative point, isn't it? More persistence in the inflation process, tight labour market and continued resilience in demand. So it's a situation I think one journalist called where good news is bad news in that uh, you know, the economy remaining quite robust actually means that it just pushes the, the Bank of England to be more and more aggressive on interest rates. So ironically, when the journalists are screaming and shouting from the rooftops that we've gone into recession, it's all terrible, actually that'll be good news in a way in that it'll get interest rates down. And, you know, plus half a percent, plus quarter of a percent GDP or minus 0.1 percent GDP, it's, it's hardly any difference. It's a rounding error. And these, number, these numbers are all estimates in any case, and they're highly complicated and based on models that are often um, not realistic. One of the points I uh, always think about is that households manage our own inflation rates by buying different products. We don't just blindly buy the same basket of food. Uh, I've eradicated food inflation completely. I just go to the supermarket and I spend 30 quid every time I go there, small, frequent shops, and I just um, I just adjust things. I buy the special offers. I uh, buy cheaper veg. Uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can control your budget, which the inflation numbers don't take into account, those mitigating effects that households actually take. And a lot of the... The higher interest rates were things you don't have to buy, discretionary things. Apparently, airfares and holidays saw big increases in inflation, which fed feed into the numbers. Um, you know, so these numbers are not sacrosanct. And also, it's got a very interesting section on the international economy, where the Bank of England report basically says that you've got the same factors ha- um, happening in the euro area and the United States, where labour markets have remained tight. Uh, unemployment rates remaining close to their historically low levels and strong wage pressure. So these are the same factors that we're seeing in the UK. So I would question whether the idea that UK inflation is stubbornly high, and that's only based on two or three data points in recent months, I question whether that's actually real. You know, it might be just a statistical um, aberration. You know, the same factors are affecting... uh, as I say, the whole of Europe and the, and America as Britain. So um, I don't know. I'd be interested to see um, more detailed expert analysis of these numbers to see if there are uh, anomalies. I don't understand why the Fed is still being so aggressive on interest rates, given that it says here in the MPC report, United States headline CPI inflation has fallen by 0.9 points in May to 4%. So why are they hiking? Well, no, they paused, haven't they? But interest rates are now above inflation in in the US. Um, And they were talking about further rises later this year, which seems... Why are they doing that? Because they've pretty much got got inflation below uh, interest rates already in the US. I don't understand that. So answers on a postcard if you've got any insights on that. It says here that government yield, government bond yields have been particularly pronounced increases in the United Kingdom, which is true. Um, Again, Trading Economics has got good pages on that. You can see uh, UK gilts are are a lot more expensive than obviously Germany and France. And um, it's interesting, actually, that the European countries which are not in the Eurozone are paying, in some cases, like Hungary, for example, are paying sky-high borrowing costs and interest rates compared with the eurozone so maybe maybe they're regretting not having joined the the euro and basically uh leaning on germany's um credit worthiness to help themselves but obviously giving away their sovereignty in the process it says here the gdp was there was an impact of strike activity on the volume of public sector output um 
Outlook for Q3 in 2023. This is all from the Bank of England, remember. Uh, it says it was more uncertain, but the bank staff continue to judge that a quarterly growth rate of around quarter percent was a reasonable central projection. So they're saying uh, we're not going into recession. Just yet, anyway. A slight pickup in the outlook for underlying activity in the second half of 2023. Uh, most indicators of household spending have tended to strengthen a little over recent months, albeit from very weak levels. Uh, and they note that consumer confidence had continued to pick up. Uh, consumer demand had been more resilient than expected across both goods and services. So, I mean, that's quite positive for shares if you've got uh, retail and bombed out retail and hospitality shares, I would suggest, at least in the short term. The labour market, they refer to the Labour Force Survey, LFS. Uh, historically low unemployment, of course, at 3.8%. And we've actually got apparently quite good labour participation rates, which are starting to improve, which is contrary to what I've read elsewhere, saying apparently people are at home with long COVID, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It says recruitment difficulties had continued to ease. This is relying on the survey from KPMG and REC. Can't remember what that stands for. Uh, overall recruitment had still been more difficult than normal. So employers are, but it's improving slightly, so employers are still finding it difficult to get people with the right skills, it seems. And now it says there's some early signs of softening pay growth. That's good news because uh, that will help them hopefully um, not have to increase interest rates much more, if at all. Maybe we might even get them trimming them at some point. Pay settlements in the second half of this year could be somewhat lower than in the first half. Again, that seems positive to me. Now, the core uh, inflation going up to 6.8% in May. This is interesting. Purchases of vehicles and recreational goods had accounted for the majority of this news. So, if you're not buying a car or recreational goods, whatever that is... Um, then your CPI rate is actually lower. And it says here, surprise strength in vehicle prices had appeared to be related to a temporary supply shortage of two- to three-year-old cars, which coincided with the age of the range of the vehicles for which the ONS collected prices. Now, that's interesting, because it sounds like a bit of a distorting factor as to why uh, core inflation in May in the UK went up. So, you know, you could get some of these things reverse or adjust out. So, again, I question the data, whether the UK really is an outlier with higher inflation, or if these are maybe, maybe at least in part, statistical anomalies. Um, I don't know, you'd have to ask a, t a statistician, but that seems to be, well, that's what this report is, is suggesting, isn't it? There's another anomaly on inflation in paragraph 27. It says, services CPI inflation rose from 6.9% in April to 7.4% in May, but this partly reflected a sharp rise in measured vehicle excise duty rates. Um, airfares and package holidays had also accounted for some of the upside news. It's a pity it didn't quantify that, but again, uh, it says airfares are a volatile component of the basket. So, and the timing of Easter affected things again. So that sounds like more anomalies in the data, doesn't it? Rather than an underlying problem with stubborn inflation, I would suggest. And food inflation's edged down, but it's still 18.3% in May. Very, very high. But it's saying um, with a lag, you know, the, um, the prices should continue falling. 
Indicators of manufacturing cost pressures had nevertheless continued to ease. This is paragraph 30. Producer price index input inflation had had moderated to 0.5%. So um, on core goods. So again, that's um, consistent with developments in America and the euro area. So you've got um, uh, inflation on, on, on manufactured goods basically down to pretty much nil, which will feed through to consumer prices in a, in a, in a favourable way, won't it? Um, service price inflation is expected to remain elevated in the near term, um, but a fair proportion of cost increases had been passed on already to consumer prices. Paragraph 32 on food inflation says uh, food inflation is expected to ease in the near term reflecting the waning of pass-through from previous shocks uh, and the recent fallback in cost inflation further up the food supply chain. So again, that's there's quite a lot of uh, forward-looking positive stuff here. Paragraph 42 is interesting, where it's saying the committee uh, are monitoring the impact of the significant, increase, in, in, significant increases in base rates so far, and it's mindful of what this will do to the property rental market, because, of course, that will actually trigger more inflation, won't it? If landlords' um, mortgage payments go up, they're going to pass that on with higher rents. So it's good to see that the MPC is uh, aware of that. So, ironically, you know, more further jacking up of interest rates could actually stimulate inflation, at least on uh, household rents. Two of the members of the committee wanted to leave base rates unchanged at 4.5%. The other seven wanted to hike it to 5 So quite surprising that there's no, uh, the, the, there weren't more people in the middle saying, well, let's increase it by 025 But anyway, maybe it doesn't work like that. It does say here in paragraph 47 that if there's further evidence of more persistent inflation, then further monetary tightening would be required. So anyway, it's all very interesting. Um... What they're saying in summary is that the economy is running too hot, so it uh, seems laughable when, when we're bumping along at GDP, but it's mainly uh, the labour market and um, inflation are running too hot for them for their liking, so they, that's why they've hiked interest rates so much. But they're also saying that, that there's lots of uh, forward-looking data to suggest inflation's coming down later this year. Uh, the whole report's peppered with comments to that uh, extent, um, so I really, and that the the interest rate rises so far haven't shown their effect because of the time lag, which makes you wonder why on earth they just keep hiking and keep hiking. Surely it would be better to pause and wait to see what the effect is. So I think this is very contradictory, this report. Uh, maybe there's groupthink um, underway, but I have to bow to, obviously, their expertise. Let's just hope they know what they're doing. So it got me thinking about what the impact of higher interest rates would be on households. These are just some ideas that popped into my head. Obviously, uh, punishing borrowers with, with, with when fixed rate mortgages end, we know that, but rewarding savers with cash deposits. Uh, so it's shifting money from one group to another group, basically, isn't it? And which is not necessarily um, bad for the economy overall if the people getting there. But the savers will probably... Um, keep the interest and accumulate it rather than spending it so i suppose that's the the rationale there could also be a wealth effect as house prices fall they're definitely falling in the bournemouth area uh just from my monitoring of the market the asking prices i would say are probably down five or ten percent already from the peak um 
and very affordable. You know, if you want somewhere nice to live, five-minute walk from the beach, from the, one of the best beaches in the UK, lovely microclimate, you can get a nice flat with you know modern bathrooms and kitchens, two bedrooms, spacious flat with a balcony for 250k in Bournemouth. Ten minutes walk to the station and a two-hour direct line into London. So I have to say, you know, big up Bournemouth. I think it's uh, it's a very affordable place to live if you're uh, working from home like I do. Um, it's a it's it's a nice place to be. Bit chavvy at the weekend in town, but you know there you go. Obviously, the higher interest rates go uh, as it affects asset values. Then, in theory, share prices, bond prices, and property prices should all drop, shouldn't they? As interest rates rise, but it depends how long people think the interest rates are going to remain elevated for. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's up to you to decide. I don't know. And then, for what effect will it have on companies? Well. Boost the profits at cash-rich companies. I'm already starting to see the finance income line on P&Ls uh, spring into life. And, you know, we've basically ignored that line on the P&L for the last 15 years. Well, we need to start looking at it again and looking at those cash balances on the balance sheet and thinking, you know, particularly a company like OMG, where nearly half the market cap is cash, all of a sudden that 60 million quid that was just dead on the balance sheet is now you know could be earning two three million quid a year in interest receivable that's a seismic change in the over what we've seen for the last 15 years and the converse is true heavily geared companies that have a lot of borrowings we need to be checking the notes to the accounts to see if they've got a fix on the interest rates like for example vp group um holds bonds which are fixed as does saga which is an advantage over companies with floating rate debts and banks are going to be much less willing to allow zombie companies to continue trading. Um, so you could see more insolvencies, I think. So in a way, my balance sheet focus and my cautious value approach to uh, companies and balance sheets and so on is coming into its own now. You know, it'll be really, really relevant to look at those bank covenants. And the interest cover covenants now will matter. They haven't, uh, they haven't been relevant when interest was zero. But, uh, you know, we really need to be careful um, looking at companies that are seeing declining profits and where they've got a, a ton of bank debt. Those could be big problems. And the other obvious thing is that business investment is likely to slow, isn't it? If your hurdle for a project was barely above zero, then a lot of poor allocations of capital uh, were done for projects, capex projects, expansion projects with poor returns. But, you know, we've seen that word, haven't we? Earnings accretive for all these acquisitions that company... Well, everything would be earnings accretive if, if it, when interest rates were zero. Um, but now that you've got a substantial cost of capital for making acquisitions, they may not necessarily be earnings accretive. So um, I think B2B demand might well fall. You know, things like software companies and capex company companies supplying capex for other companies could see so you know i think we'll start to see more oh contracts have been delayed you know this has moved from the current year into the following year the 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 sales cycle has slowed customers are not committing so i think you'll see lots of profit warnings um in those sorts of sectors b2b so let's be careful on that. Look, I've rambled for long enough. I hope you found this interesting. I've probably lost most people now because this is nearly an hour, but uh, there was just a lot of stuff to go through. Anyway, um, let's keep battling down the hatches and see where we go um, over the rest of the year. OK, bye for now.